thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I'm going to get to the bottom of what I think might be a fatal flaw in some of the thinking expressed by some of those who were interviewed in the recent video recently released by Jeff Durbin, an Arizona pastor who has headed the End Abortion Now movement. And the video is entitled The Fatal Flaw, Lies, Laws, and Pro-Life Deception. You can find it on YouTube, and I would encourage you to watch it. Uh, But before I do that, just another quick announcement, uh, follow-up from last week. Let me remind those of you with children between 14 and 18 years of age, particularly if you live near Chattanooga, Tennessee, my hometown, uh, the Ezra Institute will be providing a week-long worldview training. And based on my knowledge of the Institute, I would encourage you to check it out. And you can do so at EzraInstitute.com. Now, on to the video. You'll recall that I began my thoughts about it last week by explaining what I think Scripture says is the most glorious aspect of the Christmas story. And today, I want to give to you what I think Scripture would tell us about what keeps abortion alive in the United States, which you may recall is how Pastor Durbin opened that video. But before I remind you of what he said and and get into some of what concerns me and some of what I've heard, is that it's my prayer that today's episode will show why theology, and in particular, our understanding of the gospel, are central, indeed foundational, to how we think about and engage with law and politics. And if you have any friends who blow that kind of thought off, say, ah, they don't get why theology is so important or how it makes really a difference. We all agree, for example, that uh, abortion murders a, a child. Well, I, I, if this podcast today is helpful to you, then I would uh, invite you to consider sharing it with others. So anyway, as I said, Pastor Durbin opened the video and described its content as, quote, an unveiling of what the main issue is that is keeping abortion alive in this nation. Thankfully, as I mentioned last week, he urged all who care about the laws regarding abortion to get engaged with him, to, and again, let me quote, work together as the church to expose actually the heart of the issue, the inconsistency, the unbiblical thing that is keeping it all alive. And, and that's what I'm trying to do, and I want to try to wrap it up today. Now, the main issue, keeping abortion alive, uh, is at least in part, as I understand it from the video, uh, and, and the one that was released by Pastor Durbin in later November that took U.S. Speaker uh, Mike Johnson to the woodshed, is the failure of states to enact criminal sanctions against every mother who authorizes someone to abort her baby or who does it herself. 
And by the way, let me say, I'm going to be looking at the reasons said to have been given by Speaker Johnson for his opposition next week because I have actually run into those and I strongly disagree with them. So tune in then. Um, but, but I think his problem and that of many on the other side of Pastor Durbin is, is perhaps a flip side of, of some of what I heard in this video. Now, I'm not saying there should not be such legislation passed. In fact, I agree with the testimony Pastor Durbin offered Missouri legislators that's seen in the video, and I agree with his statement toward the end. Uh, I want to, in fact, read it to you. Abortion is legal in every state in our union because of the dirty little secret of the pro-life establishment, and that is this. They believe that a mother should be able to kill her child in the womb with impunity and immunity. They do not believe that she's guilty. They do not believe, pastors, that she needs forgiveness for what she's done because she is, they say, a victim. I want to kind of quibble there a little bit to say that that may be drawing a conclusion that may not be there. You can, you can certainly ascribe to the idea that the woman is guilty before God. She's broken the law of God, as I said last week. Abortion is murder, whether uh, and... and murder is, is, is wrong, it's unlawful, whether the civil enacted criminal statutes declare it to be so or not. And for that, um, I would suspect many in the pro-life establishment would say that um, she does need forgiveness, right? So, so maybe that statement uh, jumps a, a bit of... Uh, to a conclusion that, that might not be true of everybody in, that, in the establishment, right? And so he continues, though. They've removed the gospel from the equation. And that's a point that I really want to come back to. And they removed God's standards of justice. Now, with his statement, I, I want to just say, it's true that every pro-life organization I know and I would even say, even those that are not expressly and, and by chosen corporate limitation pro-life, just pro-family, I, I venture to say that uh, all of them, other than end abortion now, opposes any form of legislation that would impose any kind of criminal sanction on a mother, regardless of what the circumstances might be and what is proved. And, and because most of those groups have taken this position for years, as is stated in the video, rightly, they are rightly, and in my opinion, not pejoratively called the abortion establishment. They're, they're the established groups. I think that's what's meant by them. And, and I am not on the same page as those organizations, and for many of the same reasons given in the video. In fact, I think if... If all of us better understood how the criminal justice system works, or at least is supposed to work, and if in connection with these laws, added measures to make sure it works correctly, I think it would make the consideration of these laws 
a lot easier, debate about them a lot easier. But ignorance in that regard makes it hard to do justice, uh, to say that, you know, if you murder, nobody gets an exemption from murder unless it's in, you know, self-defense or, or you are incapable of understanding the nature of your act, right? Uh, but because of that ignorance, it, it, it can make these laws look harsh, and I'll take that up at, at the end. But anyway, what I want to highlight and look at is, is the gospel issue that Pastor Durbin raised, and, and not because of what he said. He didn't say what the gospel issue was, but what others said in the video. And I want us to look at it because how we understand the gospel should determine not just what laws we try to enact or oppose, but the reasons and motivations for it. Justice, though, is always a good reason for civil government to act. So, so that's not my concern. Rather, it has to do with how I think at least some of the abolitionists in the video may be thinking about the nature of law in relation to the gospel. And, and I say that with all gentleness, though with candor, because problems arising out of the relationship between law and grace go way back. It's in a number of Paul's letters, which we're going to look at. And to put it out there, that I think there's a gospel problem revealed in some of what I saw and heard in the video, I want to start with um, some of the women that were portrayed in the, the video or shown in the video. There were three or four women shown in the video extolling how pleased they were with their abortions and that they would do them again. And no doubt those clips show that not all women are victims, which is how the pro-life establishment portrays them. But like the doctor who performs the abortion, some of these women know exactly what they're doing, and they're boasting about it like a sniper might about, you know, his number of kills out in the field, right? But one of those interviews got my attention. It was a short interview of a university professor, and it relates to the gospel and what I'm going to talk about, the gospel issue that I see here. And, and here's what she said. I had an abortion two years ago, and I don't regret it at all. They yanked the fetus out of my uterus. They yanked the uterus out of my uterus, and I'm so happy. I'm so grateful. And here's what caught my attention. And I'm a professor at this university, and I make more money than you. And that last part, tacked on at the very end almost as an afterthought, is I think the key, really the key to the whole abortion issue, and why I think abortion is kept alive and, and will continue to be kept alive. Um, and, and to make that more clear, why I think that's the key. I want to read you this statement from one of the pastors extensively interviewed in the video that I think puts the gospel issue right up front. And here's what he said. When we tell the mother who kills her own child by abortion that she's a victim, we are depriving her of the gospel, which is the only hope for her to be forgiven. I want to stop there and just say that um, I, I don't have so much of a quibble with that statement because we live in a society where we don't have guilt 
we're just all victims. So when we use the word that she's a victim, we are implying that there isn't guilt there. And, and I think the establishment needs to rethink how they talk about that because it's hard to look at those women in the video talking about how glad they are that the baby was yanked out of their uterus and they've done it seven times and they knew it again and all that and say, yeah, she sure sounds like a victim. Now, in a way, she really is. And I'll get to that at the end. But when you tell her she's a victim, she can't be conscious that, oh, I've really done something wrong here. And, and so I, I agree with that. And here's what he next says. If she hasn't committed a sin, then the blood of Jesus is of no help to her. And that's true, right? I mean, um, if, if we had no sin, then we don't need Jesus. Now, she needs sin, uh, Jesus, excuse me, for, for more than, you know, the, taking the life of her baby or participating in it. But, but here's what really caught my attention. The only way that the gospel applies is if we confess our sin. Now, here's how I'm taking that. Well, let me just go on for a moment. Another person in the video expressed a similar idea. Listen, listen to what he said. The gospel is a message for guilty people. Well, that's true. Jesus didn't come to save the, the well, right? He came to seek the, the lost, the sick, right? It's a message for those who have broken God's law. It's true, too. And people do not experience reconciliation and peace with God the Father. Here's, again, the key part. And it, to me, it sounds like what the pastor said previously. Unless that comes by turning from sin and toward Jesus Christ in faith, confessing that what they have done, they are guilty of before God. Now, what could be wrong with what they've said? Why might these statements reveal a gospel issue? Now, for that, let me turn first to Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, an excerpt from his wonderful little book, it's not long, called The Whole Christ. I would encourage you to get it and read it, particularly if what I say is a challenge to you, particularly if you were raised as I was, by being hammered all the time with what Christians are supposed to do and realizing you're not living up to it. Okay, so here's what he says. Quote, Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace for all who will come to him. This is genuinely good news for every person. There are no exceptions. Christ is dead for him. This, he says, quote, preserved the New Testament's emphasis not only on the fullness of grace of Christ, but also in the freeness of that grace in Christ. It is not sound, he says, to say that a man must first quit sin in order to be qualified for the offer of Christ. The offer of the gospel is to be made not to the righteous or even the repentant, but to all. There are no conditions that need to be met in order for the gospel offer to be made. He continues, there can be a subtle movement from seeing forsaking sin 
as the fruit of grace to making the forsaking of sin the necessary precursor for experiencing that grace. Repentance, which is the fruit of grace, thus becomes a qualification for grace. This, he says, puts the cart before the horse. It stands the gospel on its head, so that the proclamation of the gospel with the call to faith in Christ becomes conditional on something in the hearer. And he goes on to add this statement that I'll come back to in a little bit. Further, it sows the seeds of deep pastoral problems in the lives of those who were nevertheless genuinely brought to faith under such a system of preaching, enter the kingdom from this matrix, and it's likely to shape one's entire Christian life. Now, that's what Dr. Ferguson said, and I know he's not in the Bible, so let's take a look at what the Bible says. It says that transgression, I'm quoting here from Psalm 41, is what speaks to the ungodly in his heart. So the ungodly can go on sinning and not think a thing about it. I mean, sinners can, so to speak, sin to their heart's content, right? Because that's what their heart's telling them to do, and they don't see anything wrong with it. And here's where I want to summarize, at least in my own words, what Robert Haldane said more fully in his exposition of chapter 7 in Romans. And um, again, you can find his exposition online. The reason I think he's important is because he, he came to Geneva when it was awash in secular, humanist, enlightenment thinking, and the seminary students heard him. And, and he was preaching a gospel they had, were not hearing in seminary, and eventually all the people from seminary started coming to hear him preach, and he got in trouble with the people in the seminary, which they happened to me too, but that's okay. Uh, and here's what, what, in essence, he says. He's, he's talking here about Romans chapter 7. I would encourage you to read it. And Paul says he was alive without the knowledge of sin until God made his commandment come alive to him. That's in Romans 7, 9. And that's when he saw that sin had been at work in him and into relation to God. That's when the law killed him. And he was ready then to be raised in newness of life. Now, interestingly, the commandment that Paul said in that chapter that came alive to him and, and transformed all his law-keeping merits into a pile of dung. Remember, that's what he says in Philippians chapter 3 was the law about coveting. Now, why did he pick that one out? I mean, here's a guy that had been dragging people off, sitting there watching Stephen being stoned. He didn't say, oh, wow, I came to understand murder. That's what brought me to my knees. It was coveting. And here's the key to understanding what coveting is and why it drove him to his knees. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says that coveting is idolatry. Coveting is simply any desire we have that's not caught up in and directed toward our greatest desire, which is for God and for what God desires for us. Until then, the law of God and the demands of God are burdensome 
But when that desire is there, it is not so. We come to love the law and want to meditate it on it day and night. And, and, and that's what happens when our hearts and our heads have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And, and we realize that in Christ, the Father, by means of the Holy Spirit, is letting us see the glory of enjoying and being partakers of the perfect love that exists among God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that perfection can be shared in by us forever. That's when we see the heinousness of our sin. Okay? But I don't think that's what any mother is going to see in a statute imposing criminal sanctions on her. If that's what we think, by, by enacting that statute, she will come to repentance and see her sin before God, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think she's going to draw that, that conclusion. I mean, it might convict her of the sin of murder, but, but even that, the conviction that murder was wrong, is going to be the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit, not the law itself. In fact, Paul calls the law itself, without seeing the glory of God, a, quote, ministry of condemnation and a ministry of death. You can look it up in the context of statements about the glory of Christ. It's in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 um, through 18. But see, I don't think that's the root problem the woman needs to repent of, murder, at least not in relation to God anyway. And she tells us why. <coughs> Excuse me. That's not the root problem. When she says to the interviewer, I'm a professor at this university and I make more money than you. What she disclosed was her covetous desire regarding her position or her money in contradistinction to God's desire for her which was to bring into existence in her womb the life of another human being made in his image. Of course, covetous is not limited to money and things like that. A mother can desire all kinds of things other than God transforming her from a woman into a mother. But here's why covetousness is so important. And here, again, I want to quote from Haldane. Quote, By the commandment here referred to, and what he's referring to is Paul's reference to covetousness in chapter 7 of Romans. The law in all its parts appears to be meant with a special allusion to the Tenth Commandment, which shows that the desire of what is forbidden is sin. This commandment, the Tenth Commandment, the commandment about coveting, might well be put for the whole law for it could not be obeyed without the whole law being kept. That's what made Paul fall to his knees. Not that he had committed murder. And, and James makes the connection between covetous and murder for us, and, and abortion, right? In James 4, 2, you lust which is the word often translated coveted or covet, and you don't have, you murder and 
covet. Now, I just want to ask, does anybody, any pastor think, a mother convicted of an abortion crime will see in that conviction a need to repent of idolatry? You see, that's really her root problem in relationship to God. And, and I suspect she won't, given that no pastor in the video or any person in the video suggested that this was the main issue that might be keeping abortion alive in our nation, our covetousness, our idolatry. Or maybe I should say that covetousness is idolatry. And we are a covetous, idolatrous people. Now, Haldane also expressed well how law works in regard to coveting and why the Spirit discovering to him the truth about covetousness was the key, not the law. Here's what he says. Was Paul ever without the law? He was in ignorance of it till his conversion. And this he here calls being without the law. Again, he's referring to Romans chapter 7. He was ignorant of its spirituality and consequently had no true discernment of his innate corruption. Paul then goes on to note that this discernment couldn't, and here I quote, have been in childhood or in riper years at any time previous to his seeing Christ. For if he had such a view of the law previously, he would not, in his own opinion, have been blameless concerning its righteousness. It's obvious Paul had his proper view of the law only in the cross of Christ. And, and here's what holding the nets. In other words, that is, when he understood the true import of the commandment as forbidding the desire of anything prohibited by the law. He had heard and studied it before in its letter, but never till then did it come to its full extent and power to his conscience. I'm not sure without any pastor going to this woman who's convicted of criminal abortion, she'll ever see that her root problem is idolatry. I just don't think. I mean, it wasn't suggested in the video, so I don't, I don't know why the unregenerate woman is going to see that that's really the problem. That's why she needs the gospel, you see. Murder was just the expression of the inner covetousness against God and his will that was her idolatry. Now, here's one last little thing, and this is hard, but I'm going to bring it up. If criminalization of sin and sin in relation to abortion will bring about salvation and righteousness in a person. If you remember, if you listened to last week's podcast, I asked three or four questions toward the end about what would, what would we think would happen if we pass laws that criminalized even just the big sins, right? Like uh, murder and bearing false witness and, uh, and um, you know, stealing dishonoring our mother and our father, right? And, and, and here's, the, here's the thing I would like for us to think a little bit more about. If criminalization of sin really can do that, 
then perhaps we need to think about one other sinner in this picture. And it's the one I don't see anybody really directing much attention to, and that's men. Men who support abortion often, if not always, do so out of their own covetousness, just like the woman. They want for themselves whatever it is they think the child will interfere with, so the child needs to go. I think covetousness lies behind the men who don't step up to raise, nurture, and provide for the child that's aborted. I submit that men who would support pro-abortion politicians because of the benefits of that politician's economic policies are, are covetous too. I mean, in some, like Adam, who failed Eve in the garden when she was tempted, too many men have failed women. Like Eve, who was deceived by the lies of the feminists and the abortionists, men, like Adam, have the greater sin because they, like Adam, did nothing to remind them of the great glory that is the woman's in being the only person who can nurture into existence another person made in the image of God, who can reveal his glory and know this God of perfect love. So men too have guilt before God. But too many men, I think, like Adam, want to lay all the guilt at the feet of the Eves in our world. So I think we have a gospel issue that we really need to think through. And I believe God has been good to expose it. And, and I believe it will work toward good if we, as Pastor Durbin said, quote, work together as the church to expose actually the heart of the issue, the inconsistency, the unbiblical thing that's keeping it alive. And I pray I've contributed to that. Well, thanks for listening. And I hope you'll tune in next week as we look at the opposition to Pastor Durbin's efforts spearheaded and represented by people like Mike Johnson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.